Good morning, and thank you for joining host Cheryl Esposito for an intriguing hour of leading conversations. Each week, Cheryl brings together big thinkers to the Voice America Business Channel. Now here's your host, Cheryl Esposito. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. Today, I have a very special guest, Ronaldo Brutico, who is a very successful entrepreneur, executive, author, and futurist. He's the founding president of the World Business Academy. Most of Ronaldo's work circles around clean energy and climate change, sustainable business strategy, and global reconstruction. There's a whole lot to talk about here. Ronaldo, welcome to Leading Conversations. Well, thank you, and thank you for having me on. It's delightful to be able to talk to you about any of it, all those issues, frankly. And I know that you're quite busy. Where are you today? Ah, today I am, you caught me between. Uh, I was in San Diego until night, last night, and then today I'm in Santa Barbara, and I'll be here until tomorrow, and then I leave for Seattle, which is, and the reason I share that with you is that's sort of like <laughs> what my life is about. I still yeah. spend over half my time on the road, which is uh, a challenge, but um, it, it's doing stuff I love, so I don't complain about it. I just think it's funny because you asked the question that most people who know me, I think, where am I? Where are you when I'm talking to you? <laughs> <laughs> where in the world is Ronaldo today? Yep. Yeah, you right. have a, just a map, you know, people can look on your website. <laughs> here he is right here. Uh, so, Ronaldo, I am... I've known you for a few years, and I have always been intrigued by your energy and your interest in solving problems and and looking at the big issues in the world. And, you know, I I just really wonder, did this start in you when you were a kid? I mean, did you just develop this curiosity about what made the world work? Where did this come from in you? Yeah, I I mean, for me, it did start uh, as a child. I had a very interesting experience when I was quite young, and it sort of set me on a path. Um, Some people would call it a mystical experience, uh, where Mm -hmm. you just sort of check out and you're you're in another domain, and when you come back, you don't know how long you were gone, but you would never forget for the rest of your life where you went. And Mm -hmm. uh, that happened to me when I was quite young, and uh, it sort of set me on a path to, um, I consider where I went was home. And everything in between here and going back there is just being a traveler on a path. Uh, and mm-hmm. so I see myself as somebody who's um, basically here for some purpose, for some duration. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the principal question that I always ask myself, and I think is the most intelligent question that, frankly, anyone can ask themselves, is if you believe there's a higher order of things, and I certainly do, um, then the question is, how can I serve? Mm. And when you start asking that question, if you're really honest, even when the answer comes back in a way you don't like, you follow it. And that's mm. what has been sort of my lodestone of all these years. That is amazing. How old were you when you had that experience? Um, gosh, seven, eight, seven or eight. Really? And did it frighten you? Did you... No, oh no, the exact opposite. Oh no, my gosh, no, it was uh, it was the most uh, warm uh, Mm. full-on experience of total love and acceptance. 
and even the light that I saw, which was quite bright, um, wasn't didn't hurt my eyes. It just wasn't in, obviously my eyes must have been closed. It wasn't an external light. Uh, it was mm-hmm. a uh, it was an internal light. But even that mm-hmm. was not in any way discomforting. No, it just felt like home. It just felt like wow, this is yeah. this is pretty good. <laughs> and then when That's it's over, you go, gosh, I'd love to go back. How do I get back? <laughs> <laughs> Well, and have you had the experience since? No, I haven't. No, I haven't. And um, it may be that, um, for me at least, once I had that experience and I started to engage in the world, um, maybe that's um, all I needed to have to get me to do what I'm doing. Uh, Or maybe because I do so much now, I'm... um, Maybe I'm creating artificial barriers to that level of intuition or that level of connection. It's it's an interesting question. Mm. Oh, so I have to know: Did you tell your parents? No. Or any adults? Not at that time. Ultimately, I did. Yeah. But not at that time. Yeah. Because I didn't yeah. know how to describe it or what it was. Uh, yeah, and it took yeah. years of you know kind of being with it to figure it out. Um, you know, and I started reading the Christian mystics. Uh, you know, John of the Cross, mm. Teresa of Avila, and that sort of literature um, to help me try and get a handle on what happened. Uh, and, um, you know, it's it's kind of thing, if, if anybody that's listening to this ever had an experience like that, it's the absolute opposite of ego. So yes. it's very humbling, and it's it yes. provokes, for me, a lot of curiosity, but it doesn't provoke a desire to want to share it prematurely because I didn't know what I was dealing with. I was too young. Yes, yes, yeah. Yeah, that whole sense of um, the insignificance of our significance, right? Um, yeah. Or I should say that the opposite way, the significance of our insignificance because, you know, when you have that sense that there is something so much bigger than yourself, and you realize yeah. that, you know, you're just a tiny little speck in that. And yet, what you can do to affect that, you know, is so significant. So I just, I find that fascinating. Yeah, and, and, you know, there's a corollary uh, that, that everybody can relate to. So you know that the p- most popular picture ever viewed by humans is called Earthrise. It's the picture Mm -hmm. of the Earth from the moon. And you see the Earth rising up behind the moon. And that's, without a doubt, the number one most viewed picture in the history of human civilization. And anybody who sees that picture can have a really interesting parallel experience because they can get the significance of being on this little blue marble Mm -hmm. in the vast void of space. And the... I mean, it's so, you're so insignificant. The planet is insignificant, in, 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 in even in our universe, let alone the cosmos, right? Uh, it's not yes. even a big deal in our solar system, except for its location. So I think that uh, when, you, when you see Earth rise, when you see the Earth rising like that from a distant vantage point, the moon, it gives you the opportunity to make a fundamental choice. Are you going to figure out what you're here to do to harmonize with this incredible harmonic universe? Or are you going to be the person who has so much ego you want to bang your head against it? Mm. And if you don't want to bang your head against it, then you come up with the same question I came up with, which is how can I serve? If you really believe 
that the universe, mm-hmm. the cosmos, is this unbelievably complex and gorgeous organism that somehow yeah. we get to be a part of, an, an infinitesimally small part. Uh, trying to force your will on it would be the height of insanity. You're deciding to serve whatever is this bigger cosmos, this harmonic that's happening, would be the only logical thing to do. Mm. And, I, that's and, beautiful. Yeah, and, and, and what it does, though, is it requires humility, because it, it, it requires you to be able to mm. surrender what you thought was your what was important to you. And so you end up doing things that you would never put on your own dance card. Right? <laughs> I love it. Yeah, and so, so fast says, forward. Yeah. Go ahead. No, whenever somebody says to me, I can't figure out your resume. Why are you in so many different things? That's the answer. Uh. If you ask that question, <laughs> that's the answer. Yeah, because I'm not I'm not impressed by or motivated by any traditional standard. I was never impressed yeah. by the idea of making money. In fact, if I wasn't married to such a wonderful woman all these years, uh, I probably wouldn't be even. Yeah, I mean, still wouldn't have gotten the the idea that there's a certain minimum that you have to do just to be in the game. <laughs> uh, that's great. So so fast forward to uh, your college years and then graduate school, you decided to move toward the law. Now, how did you get there? Well, it it, 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 it evolved in part because I did extremely well in college. Mm -hmm. And uh, once I dis- and I did not do well in high school. I did not done well in grade mm. school. I was an extremely poor student. I-, I-, I often tell this to people so they can know there's always hope. Uh, I think I graduated <laughs> barely with a C minus for my four years of high school, and wow. I didn't know that wasn't because I wasn't smart enough to do the work. I found out later it's because I was just totally bored with the whole system. And when I got yeah. to college and I was under pressure to have to get good grades to stay in, I found that I loved being in school. And I Mm -hmm. loved learning and I did extremely well academically and otherwise. And so um, by the time my third year got around, my junior year, I started thinking as I think a lot of college people do, a lot of college folks, gee, what do I want to do next? And and I didn't have a good answer. Um, And I felt, you know, I I just, I'm not ready to go do something. I've got to get some more training. And um, I, I had two choices in front of me. I was either going to go because I did I got straight A's virtually, and I was either going to go to the London School of Economics, or I was going to go to law school. And I was really torn. And and I because mm. I I had two I had two undergraduate degrees. I knew I was going to get a degree in economics and a degree in philosophy. And so I thought, you know, and I don't think I'm ready for either one of those yet. And the philosophy degree was teaching me to think outside the box. Because, you know, philosophy yeah. is the love of learning. Right. So I was learning that I liked learning, and I thought, okay, well, where would I go that would give me the most breadth of skills? And when I looked at it that way, law school went out. And in uh-huh. hindsight, if there had been a joint program then at my school, which they have today, by the way, a few years after I got out, they yeah. put it in place for an MBA and, and law degree, I would have done the, the joint program. But uh, as it turned uh-huh. out, that didn't exist at the time. So, so I read that at the age of 25, 
you became the youngest attorney to argue before the California Supreme Court, and that was the case of California Public Interest Law Center versus the Public Utilities Commission. That must have been quite a moment. Well, it really was, and and I'm proud of the court because we won a six-to-one verdict in that case. Uh, And the one judge who voted against us, Justice McComb, actually was the only justice in the history of California to ever be impeached for senility. Because he actually was, he was, he was, he was, he was very oh, late. No. Even then. <laughs> oh um, my gosh. Yeah, it was a very, oh gosh, the oral argument was funny because he didn't realize during the oral he was so um, senile at that point when the oral argument was going on, he got up from his chair and he walked over to, they have a restroom over on the, off the side of the main dais of the court. And he didn't realize his microphone was still on. So oh, no. he starts, <laughs> yeah, starts to go to the bathroom, and the chief justice, as it starts to come out of a law speaker, fortunately, I wasn't arguing at that point. It was uh, Pacific Bell that was arguing, because uh, the real party of interest was Bell Telephone. And uh, oh. Bell, Bell attorney, and the chief justice holds up his hand in a motion to, like, say, stop, and he waits till Justice McComb is done, and then you hear this, fajoom, and he's flushing. And the chief justice moves forward and says, you may resume, counsel. <laughs> so I'm guessing it happened to more guys than me, apparently. <laughs> but yeah, no, it was an That's amazing case. Funny. It was the largest case in the history of the United States. Uh, we, the, 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 I was suing Bell Telephone, but I had to sue the state of California as well because they had given Bell a the right to charge uh, the public over $100 million at that time, which in 1969, when that case arose, was a lot of money. And um, it was the largest class action at that time in, in United States history. It just so happened it came up in the state of California. So I argued it up the California courts, and, and, and we took that case. And that case ended up being exceptional for a number of reasons, including um, the court almost never gives you more than 20 minutes. And that case was yeah. so unusual, they gave us two hours to argue it. So it was a, a wow. very fascinating case because it had to do not only with what Bell did that was illegal, because clearly what they did was illegal, and they were overcharging about $110 million, and they created a track record with the PUC, which would have provided another $30 million to General Tell behind them if that case had not gone the way it did. So it was a big dollar amount for those days. And, it, and I argued it based on why they should not be allowed to do it, but I also argued that somebody ought to be put in charge of watching who, who regulates utility companies. Because the Public Utilities Commission in that case had not done its job, and it hadn't done it for reasons that we all know too well today. Uh, politics right. uh, is too often influenced by money, and, and politics influences yeah. what the PUC does. It's, it's funny that you called today. I literally, since I argued that case back then, and I did write it brief, and it, it started when I was a second-year law student. And I took it up on appeal, as, and I, as it turned out, I graduated literally and joined the bar one month before the oral argument, so I just barely got in under the wire. Thank goodness I passed. And um, today, just today, two hours ago, I was finishing blocking out what's called a petition for certiorari, which means a petition to the same Cal Supreme Court, also because of a government agency, in this case the State Lands Commission, improperly applied the the law in permitting Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant to operate without a proper environmental impact review. And so I am oh. now at the end of my legal career because <laughs> I'm between, <laughs> I didn't do any litigation, basically. <laughs> no, 
back at it. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. So you have, you have maintained, you have maintained your practice or simply. No, no, actually that's funny. I went inactive. Not at all? I went inactive in ah. 1974. Uh, and I did use the law. I've used it extensively in everything I've done. Uh, uh, But I didn't take clients. I I quickly realized I didn't want to take clients. I wanted to be able to use my legal background in a targeted way for things that I thought would make a difference. And uh, Mm. so that's what I've done. Uh, And I loved being a lawyer. I I loved law school. It was more fun than a barrel full of monkeys for me. And I did extremely well at it. And so I just, I've always used it. I just didn't use it the traditional way. Yeah, I love that. You know, Ronaldo, you have such a way of seeing things. And, you know, since I've known you, um, your ability to not only see many versions of a truth, um, but to really distill it down to the essence and, and the essence of what each party may be interested in and where the collaboration could be and where the big gaps are. And, and this seems to me like that, that whole skill or intuition that you carry um, is, is really at the core of a lot of your success. Is that, I think- am I getting that right? No, I think that's true, but it's also, I, I have a lot of, um, for, for, for people with my kind of track record, it's very rare to be detached, and I'm really detached from yes. outcomes. Yes. I'm outcome, yes. I'm outcome-driven in some ways, but for example, the reason I stopped being practicing law, I didn't want to take clients, when I walked out of the court that day, in, in the Supreme Court in 1972, when that case came down, 70, 71, 72, February 72. It was 72. When I, yeah, yes. when I came out of that court that day, I was pretty sure we won. And I also was pretty sure that litigation was not the answer, that, that there's no way I was going to be able to sue the business community into doing the right thing. And that's when I had this revelation. Yeah. Gosh, I'm going to have to go learn more about business so I can use business as a transformative tool, which I've spent the rest of my adult life doing. And, 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 and so I'm a learner. I'm a, I'm, I'm in a, I believe in continuous learning. I'm still learning today. And um, every time I learn something, I think it hones my ability to achieve an objective. But I never get, like, for example, even as hard as I'm fighting to get this case in front of the state Supreme Court in terms of time, money, and everything else, um, there's no piece of me that is identified that if I don't get that case and win it, there's something wrong with me. My job is to show Mm -hmm. up and do the best I can. And I, I would say to a business audience particularly, uh, if people who are, particularly if they're all entrepreneurial, and I think you mentioned that, that some of your audience yes. is in that category, I think it's extraordinarily important to have goals, but not get confused with um, the goal being something that you identify as something materially necessary for you to feel good about yourself. Mm, that is absolutely exquisitely said, and we're going to talk more about that when we come back with Ronaldo Rudico. We'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. 
Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexasaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Does your organization lack proper leadership? We're not necessarily talking about experience, but about how to face the changing dynamic of leadership today. Sometimes the people we lead know more. Old ways don't work anymore, and the comfort zone just becomes too easy. Listen for Out of the Comfort Zone with Dr. Wanda Wallace. We'll show you how you can adapt and develop your leadership skills to today's workplace. Every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Business. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. Welcome back to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito with my very special guest today, Ronaldo Brutico. Now, Ronaldo, we were talking about some of the uh, significant experiences you've had in your life and then how you um, really stepped into what was important to you and went and did your best and yet were not attached to the outcome. So winning wasn't the purpose that you were doing what you were doing. How do you teach people to be that way? Yeah, I think, you know, and by the way, I've had the good fortune uh, to, to, to do a lot of uh, graduate business school teaching and guest lecturing and stuff, and in and, and, and a great variety of schools, I mean, everything from Stanford uh, B School to Kellogg, which I think is a phenomenal B School, uh, Keen yeah. Flagler, a number of them, I, I won't list them all. The point is that in talking to young MBA types, and, and they're not always young. As you know, Stanford, you can't get in unless you've been in the yeah. world for at least four years. So these are people who are still earlier career for the most part. And, and, mm-hmm. and so when I would chat with them, I, I, I try to encourage them to see that you can have a life strategy that's different from your business strategy. So mm-hmm. I wouldn't necessarily recommend to anyone uh, if they wanted to be an entrepreneur, if I was going to do a lecture on being an entrepreneur, uh, if I was going to talk to somebody, I would couch my remarks to benefit them and how they could learn some things with what I've learned to be a better entrepreneur. I would, however, Mm. tell them that if my life strategy conflicted with my business strategy, I'd change the business strategy most likely because I'm hoping Mm. that every listener, whether in the B school or listening to the show, every listener has to put their values at the core of who they are 
if they have any hope of achieving happiness. So mm. I call that, 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 you call it value-centric living. Okay? Uh, and, and as a business, I run value-centric corporations. That's one of my secrets is I run, and I, I won't do anything in business unless it's value-centric. And I believe that that is a reason why I've been as successful as I have. Uh, but if there had been a conflict between my values and a business opportunity, there's no way that I would not switch the business opportunity to conform to my value-centric life mm. strategy. And that's so, people, people get off the trouble, in trouble in that, in that one, by the way. And, and yeah. it goes back to haunting in terrible ways. I absolutely agree. We see that every day, front page of the Wall Street Journal, right? Um, so if you are living a value-centric life and, you know, you really do understand and can discern the difference between how uh, your business can be value-centric as well and if there is a gap between what you want to live and how the business is running, you'll change that. The life strategy will win out and the business strategy will change. Um, Have you ever had a situation where you had to consciously say, no, I'm not going to engage in that business partnership or uh, no, I'm going down the wrong path. I'm going to um, pivot or, you know, just pull back and regroup. Have you ever had a situation like that? Yeah, I, I, like everybody else, you know, you get into things and, and you don't know when you're getting into them everything you need to know. And yeah. at some point, you when you figure it out, you, you go, okay, well, that's not going to work uh, for me. I, I, I would say that the the number one value for a person as well as for an entrepreneur is integrity. And I would define mm. integrity as living the truth you know. Not the truth I know. Yeah. Not the truth Cheryl knows. The truth you know, yeah. whoever's asking the question. Yeah. Because if you yeah. are aligned with the truth you know, you're going to be very effective. And so mm. when someone shows up in my life where it's going to cost me money but I've decided these are uh, not people I want to be in business with. I don't yeah, even think yeah. about the money. I just walk away. Right. You know, right, and, and right. that's actually happened to me uh, on one very large deal. I, I actually, there was a, 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 a fellow and, and a woman. They were not in relationship. They were business partners uh, who took advantage of me in a situation where of a company I started. And um, for them and with them, and, uh, and at the 11th hour, they basically uh, tried to extort me into going along mm. with something that was completely not agreeable. And the mm. threat they had was, I at that point, this was about 20 years ago, I had $100,000 sitting in an escrow account, which would not come back to me if I walked under oh. the door. And um, some of that money came from other people that uh, I would return. Mm. So they came in and they pulled this stunt and I said, wow, you sure made my life easier. And they said, why? I said, because I just, the deal's over. It just died. And they said, well, you're going to lose your $100,000. I said, yep, cheapest 100000 I ever lost. <laughs> not, a, not even a slow Because <laughs> being in business with you people would have cost me more than that. <laughs> I love that. Well, and that yeah. takes courage, right? You know, that takes true commitment and also a belief that, you know, this wasn't the 
be all end all and there are plenty of other opportunities and something else is waiting for me. And, you know, it's, it, this kind of life philosophy, um, is not common. And yet, um, you know, we know more and more that this is really important. And this is why um, the World Business Academy that you are founder and president of um, is so powerful. Now, I, you know, I know it's a 501c3 nonprofit think tank and um, really started looking at the role that businesses can play in solving humanity's largest challenges, which is noble and sounds, you know, it's like one of those things you would read and go, oh, isn't that lovely? (laughs) How are they going to do that, right? Well, I am so impressed with the mission of the World Business Academy um, and the way that you have articulated it. I... um, I, I want to, there, there, it's called a tripartite mission, so three parts. Right. And, and what I'd like to do is, is read um, each one, and, I will, and after each one, um, I would like you to speak to it, okay? So the first one, shift the consciousness of existing business leadership from that of a predator to that of a steward because you act differently if you think you are responsible for the result. So tell us about this. Well, I think, first of all, we, this, 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 all three parts of this mission statement were the response I gave to a question asked by a very wonderful man named Willis Harmon, who uh, mm. asked me uh, one night, um, did, you, did you know Willis, Cheryl? Yeah, I know, you know who he was? is, yes. Yeah, yeah. so... Uh, until he died, he was my partner, and, and Willis was the first, uh, was a professor of electrical engineering at Stanford, and he went on to become the first professor of artificial intelligence in the world at Stanford. And then he went on, mm. and most people don't know that he was the first guy to teach AI, which is, I think, fascinating. And then he spent 16 years as the chief futurist in residence at Stanford Research Institute when it was in its glory years. And he was yes. thinking of leaving there. And he, someone, a mutual friend, had told him about a talk I gave to a private group, and he came by to ask me about that talk. And in the talk, I talked about how business needed to be responsible for the whole of society. And mm. he came to dinner, and he asked me after dinner, he said, you know, I really, and Willis did not like business, but he came to conclude that business was essential to change the dynamic, uh. that politics would not move fast enough, that uh, academe does not move fast enough, uh, religious institutions don't move fast at all. And all of them had this problem that they could not deal quickly with change, and change the speed of change was the number one issue facing human civilization. So we've always had change. The famous Greek philosopher yes. Heraclitus you know, said, you know, you can't yes. step twice in the same stream. We have change. So Willis said mm-hmm. to me, well, Ronaldo, if that's what you think has to happen, how do you go about doing that? How do you get that to happen? What, what do you need to do? And I said, well, Willis, you've got to do three things. One, you've got to shift the consciousness of existing business leadership from that of a predator to that of a steward, because you do think differently if you think you're responsible. And what I meant by that was, in, at the time I said it, which was 30 years ago, 1986, I said that. Mm. Uh, and it's been the mission of the Academy ever since, by the way, which we're now 31 years old. And, and, in, and wow. in, the, in the mission, um, I meant was business bought this falsehood from Milton Friedman and others that the purpose of business was business. 
Okay, you know, and and the and your only legitimate goal was to basically um, take care of your share owners. And I felt that was inherently flawed for a whole bunch of reasons, including if if you don't take care of the society within which the share owners live, how are you going to have share owners in the end anyway, let alone a good economy? So the idea of having people stop thinking of the way to do business as a predator, to me, was an essential change in logic that had to happen because business had the skills. See, business, you learn to change or die real fast. The marketplace is unforgiving. Mm. So if you have the skill of being able to change quickly, and that's what society is needing, the ability to adapt to quick change, then business has to be the institution that leads. And you won't lead if you think you're allowed to be a predator. See, if you think you're a predator, you see everything as prey. And it was my observation that that was a fundamental psychological change that had to occur in the business community. And uh, by the way, I'm, I'm pleased to report it's happening. Uh, when we started in 1986, it was a novel thought that we had to talk about in private groups. But when you see someone like Howard Schultz, the chairman uh, of uh, yeah. Starbucks, as within two hours after those two black gentlemen in Philadelphia were accosted by the police and yeah. arrested, he didn't go take a vote. He didn't take a poll. He didn't, like, call 16 friends. He said, that's wrong. We're going to fix that. That, that yeah. That's not who we are yeah. as a company. And he closed the entire company down on May 29th, including the corporate offices, to do a sensitivity, yeah. a race sensitivity conversation. How can this happen? Yeah. How do we keep it from happening in the future? Since then, he's also gone on to say that, you know, if the problem was that you were afraid they were going to use your bathroom, from now on, every bathroom in the Starbucks chain is free to anybody that wants to use it. And if you want to come mm-hmm. in and loiter and use our Wi-Fi, you're free to do that, too. We're not a company that wants to discriminate based on what you perceive your needs to be. Well, that's a brilliant... Mm. You'd like to see that in politics, but you don't. And the next one, to shift the consciousness of young people going into business, particularly at the business schools, to see themselves as entering a noble profession rather than a jungle, because you act differently in the temple than you do in the jungle. That's so beautifully said. So how do you influence these young people? Well, I mean, first of all, I think... um by becoming a think tank, we've we've written and published so many volumes of articles on good governance and on appropriate behavior. And and, and I've given talks, and if you go on YouTube, I don't even know who puts them up there, but there's all these different talks I've given that are on YouTube. And then, as I said earlier, I've gone to graduate schools whenever I get invited. And I I try to explain to the graduate students in business – that the, when I started in business, all the metaphors were jungle or warfare metaphors, right? It was like yes. business viewed as combat or business viewed as survival in the jungle. Survival of the fittest, used to be said. And it was clear to me that if you put your suit on, or your and that could be your suit, like a male suit or a female suit, or your work garb, yes. whatever that is, right? Yes. If you put that on in the mirror, and you look at yourself, and you see yourself dressed as a warrior for battle, or a marauder about to enter the jungle, you are going to make some very bad decisions for yourself yourself and others. Conversely, if you put that same suit on and you look at yourself in the mirror and you see yourself garbing yourself for the temple, for a, you see yourself as entering a noble profession. You're going to conduct yourself in a way that will reflect your sense of that nobility. And you're going to make great decisions for yourself, for your career, for your family, for your, for everyone in your community, and ultimately for the biosphere. Mm. 
that is, again, you know, setting the context. Um, I've, I'm pretty sure that those grad students in B school have not ever thought about it that way. And so simply to provide them with that frame must be a huge aha for them. And, and, you know, especially with some of the younger people coming up, um, they're really wanting to do things a little differently. And when you get into B-School, some of those, those thoughts disappear because of the structure of the learning. This must be revolutionary for some of them. Well, it is, but I'll tell you where the... the and by the way, your, my observation is the same as yours. I think the millennials right now are doing a better job of... Um, the word I'm looking for, of, uh, of holding the possibility for alternative value sets in business. Yes. Uh, up yeah. until recently, I'm a little discouraged because what happens, even when you say that in business schools, and, and one of the reasons I did want to be successful if I could in business, and I've been far more successful than I ever dreamed, I, um, <clears throat> I wanted to be able to, to, to stand up in front of a business school class or just students generally and say, look, I made a ton of money doing it this way. So I'm not like mm-hmm. preaching because I couldn't do it the old way. What I'm saying to you is this way works better, actually. And, and mm-hmm. I, want you to, I want you to trust that. Well, I don't think that was a popular message in B-Schools until recently, and yeah. with the exception of yeah. Kellogg. I got great reception from Kellogg day one and a decent mm-hmm. reception at Stanford and a very good reception at Keenan Flagler. But um, uh, Case Western, eh, not so much. Um, yeah. To a lesser, lesser extent, the, the University of Barcelona and some other places. So I am, um, I'm really, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm grateful for the opportunity to share that, and I'm grateful I have the resume I do, even though the one we put on, on the, on the uh, website is more about, it's got a lot of, you know, like nonprofit stuff in it. But it, sure. if people want, they can find out my, 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 my business track record. And, and, sure. um, and so I, I have this privilege of being able to say, look, I set out to do it this way 40 years ago. I did it my way, to quote Sinatra. And it works as good or better mm-hmm. than any other way. And look at all the great yeah. friends like Cheryl Esposito I got to meet in the meantime as a result. <laughs> I'm serious. Well, I'm it. honored. I'm honored. I agree with you. I mean, the, the capacity you have for um, touching the lives in so many different arenas, um, it, it, it it only serves to um, to influence your own creativity and you know the thoughts of possibility. So you live in this world of the unlimited possible, which I just I love. It's so great. So the yeah, third. Um, and by the way, the everybody. Third, everybody does. Yes. It. Maybe it's not everybody knows it. <laughs> yes. 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 And yeah. Yeah. Third. So the third part of the mission of the World Business Academy is to shift the consciousness of the public at large to put its money where its deep values are, because when the public does this, business will immediately shift in response. Well, that certainly gives a lot of power to the public. Talk about this. Well, it does, and, and, and we've always had uh, initiatives to, to fulfill that part of the mission, but I think the one that I'm really most proud of and is uh, Just Capital, which I don't know if you've stumbled across mm-hmm. that one yet. But um, Yes, yes, I have. Uh, so Deepak uh, Chopra, you know, is a very close friend of mine for all 20-some years and a fellow of the Academy. Uh, Deepak um, 
had his office send me a speech I gave to one of his conferences in 2013 uh, about Just Capital, and I announced that it was a joint venture of the Chopra Foundation, which I was then chairman of the executive committee of the board of directors, and the World Business Academy, where I was the president, CEO. I said, so we've got this joint venture to create something called Just Capital, and I go on this videotape at Deepak's urging because it's quite cute. He's doing it on camera. I don't know if you realize the camera was photographing him and me too. <laughs> but on camera, <laughs> he's urging me to keep talking about Just Capital and said, tell, tell me more. So I lay out what I thought Just Capital could be. We subsequently uh, took that conversation, and I, at Deepak's request, I went and met uh, a man named Paul Tudor Jones, uh, who is one of the wealthiest people in the world. I think he's like number 150 in the global billionaires list. And um, and a very famous guy because he did a wonderful thing 26 years ago. He started the Robin Hood Foundation. Uh, and what he does is one night a year, he raises $100 million in that one night. He's been doing it for 26 years. And he donates the $100 million to the Robin Hood Foundation, which then uses it to support charities in New York, educational institutions, uh, soup kitchens, any manner of public charities. And Paul Tudor Jones... Um, having done that for 26 years, has developed a reputation as one of the more interesting, heartfelt, and effective philanthropists. So Paul agreed to have lunch with us at his headquarters in Connecticut, uh, and Deepak and I and one other fellow uh, from, uh, went and saw him, and uh, I gave him the talk, and about a 15-minute version of the talk that I gave for Deepak, and uh, he was intrigued. And five years later, uh, just two and a half weeks ago, Paul, Deepak, and I were on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange ringing the bell on the newest oh. ETF, uh, which is a, and we raised $251 million that day uh, on, a, on a fund that was put together and is run by Goldman Sachs, who we were able to prove conclusively if they would cover the companies that were doing the best under our Just Capital Index, which are companies that are value-centric, that it would outperform the Dow Jones, the S&P, and even the Russell. And it did. Dramatically, and when Lloyd Blankfein, the chairman of Goldman, saw that, he said, "Okay, I get it. Companies that are more value centric actually run their businesses better. What a concept!" And that's just <laughs> so. That's and now that the public is seeing that, what's going to happen is it's already happening. Um, and I, I can't give you the names of companies on this call because uh, sometimes, right. but it, it, when they come to us and they want to change. And a couple of names I would mention are ones you would know instantly. They're very, very famous companies. And they end up with low rankings in the Just Capital Index, which we release every year. We rank uh, the 1,000 largest public companies in America, uh, and we have more data on that. Our budget, by the way, is $7.5 million a year just for the research part. And we end up ranking all 1,000 companies. We release the findings on the top 750. And companies with nameplates that don't like their ranking will call and say, how come we did support? Uh, and they can go to our portal and they can find out exactly how they did support. But then they want to know what would it take to change because they don't want the public to know they're bad guys because that's expensive. Right. And then they do right. change quietly and they don't give us credit, which is fine because I learned a long time ago, you can get an awful yes. lot done if you don't need to take credit for it. <laughs> that's right. It's absolutely true. Yeah. That is really powerful work and really changing the face of business. And, yeah, and that, you know, this is the kind of thing that can become such a groundswell and go from um, not being even on the radar screen of most of the public to hitting a tipping point and suddenly becoming the norm. 
How close to that do you think we are? I think we're still a ways from it. Uh, and, and I think, uh, depending on how much time we have left, and we can talk about the, the current economic conditions, which I think are very unfavorable right now, and we can talk about the political conditions, which are disastrously unfavorable, and we can talk about climate change, which is creating a pressure cooker on the whole situation, both economically and politically. Uh, if we have time, we'll talk about it. If we don't, I would just make this one comment, which is we're, we're getting closer to the tipping point every day. When you see a CEO like Paul Pullman, for example, the CEO of Unilever and, mm. and, a, and a friend of the Academy and a friend of mine, um, and leading the charge in Paris for the Paris Accords, he, he runs yes. the and he's saying, let's come up with standards that are going to save the planet, and he's going to run his business accordingly, and he's going to promote those standards. That gives me mm. a great, great deal of, of, of joy because Paul, who does it for the, all the right reasons, just like, like Tudor Jones does, but Paul's doing it also because he believes, and he's right, the right kind of shareholders will actually appreciate that kind of activity. And mm. I believe that the Just Capital Index, which, as I say, we publish annually, will create the opportunity for the public to separate the good guys from the guys that aren't such good guys. And in the process, those good guys, in quotes, will end up doing better in the marketplace because their customers will seek them out. And there's a lot of evidence now that customers do change their buying pattern if they think the company they're dealing with is one they don't approve of or they do approve of. Mm. So that's that's the third question. Well, and and again... The fact that you have stayed true to this, these are a robust and sustainable um, commitments that you, that the World Business Academy that you hold and that the, the Academy holds, um, you know, that, that is quite a tough spend. It, it, most organizations don't understand their own values that deeply. Um, you know, is there any advice you can give to organizations about how to get to that knowing, how to really be able to articulate this? Well, sure. I mean, first of all, um, look, anybody who wants to get deeper into this, first of all, they can join the Academy and we'll help them get there real quick, or we'll, we'll, we'll send them to somebody who can help them. I believe in executive coaching. I believe that the great yes. athletes can do well without a coach, but they do much better with a coach. And the same thing is Absolutely. true. So um, there are people who uh, we recommend in the academy, for example, who are really great at coaching people into how to build more value-centric uh, organizations. Um, if, yeah. it's, if it's a big enough company, I'll, I'll be happy to get involved myself um, because it's part of the mission of the academy. And, 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 and see, what I've, I've always felt, and, and I strongly believe, is I don't distinguish between what I do in the nonprofit world and what I do in the for-profit world. In other words, I don't right. do for-profit stuff first, and when I got time left over, I do nonprofit. I spend more time yeah. in nonprofit than for-profits. And the reason I mention that is because if you're not attached, then you look at everything like, okay, where's the ideal place to put it? So just capital, I could have done just capital as a for-profit entity. I don't think it would be anywhere near as successful as it is as a nonprofit. So we incubated mm-hmm. it. We've done this. We, we incubated the National Peace Academy at the Academy here. Uh, we incubate them, and then we launch them. So Just Capital, if you go to their website, which is justcapital.com, even though it's a nonprofit, they did that for ease of people finding them, mm-hmm. justcapital.com, and you look at the board of directors of Just Capital, uh, and you look at the, the mission of Just Capital, and you look at how we do what we do, and you look at my role in all of that to this day, I'm really happy that it's working, and I, that it's a nonprofit okay. doesn't trouble me. Well, if you're, if you're concerned 
about profit versus nonprofit, and you only have so much time for nonprofit, I think you end up putting things in the wrong buckets. And mm. if you do that, it's very inefficient. So to the person who would like to be more value-centric, the first thing I would say is don't assume it's something you save for church on Sunday. It's not mm-hmm. something you do two hours a week to be a good guy or a good gal. It's, it's a way of looking at yourself, the world, your relationships in the world, your relationship to the biosphere, your relationship to the cosmos. So you, in that context, a lot of what we do can look pretty petty. So you want to be up above the level where you're petty, because that's not an effective place to be, even if you think you can steal billions of dollars and get away with it. Mm. I have never met somebody who's really happy that stole a billion dollars. <laughs> and I would well, include the current, yeah. current occupant of the White House in that category. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, we don't have much time to talk about politics. I, we, we really are, That's okay. We're, we're really down to the last couple of minutes. I would like you to give us your take on just from a 30,000-foot level, what the hell is going on? <laughs> what is really happening in our world with all of this shift toward things that most of us can't even stand? Well, you know, first of all, start with how destabilized the world is. People mm-hmm. are, you know the old analogy of the boiling frog? If you put the frog in cold water and you slowly turn yes. the water up, it doesn't jump out. You put him yep. in hot water, he jumps right out. So we've been right. turning on the heat on the planet. No rational person can deny climate change. It's like if you say to me, well, I have this, I believe in the flat earth theory. Well, that's not a theory, it's a religion. <laughs> there is no flat earth theory because the earth is... Yep. Okay, there's no, there's no, um, I'm not sure about climate change theory because there's no, the evidence is so overwhelming. When you've got 1,997 of the top 2,000 climatologists in the world completely in agreement, and they don't go far enough, by the way, it, you can't, yeah. there's no legitimate scientific question here. So you right. start by that and you say, okay, why is that so important? Well, you've got 65 and a half million refugees. Sixty-five and a half million. That's way more than came out of World War II. Wow. And the pressure that put on Europe, particularly, has been enormous. Yes. The pressure of what's going on all over the world, because we're turning up the heat, literally. Okay, so the east coast of mm. the United States had, it, had weather was 20 degrees above normal last week, right? Yes. Okay, yes. anybody who thinks that that doesn't create effects doesn't understand. So yes. we, are now, yes. we are now literally cooking ourselves. And what we're doing is we're disrupting entire continents. So you've got, like, Africa is completely destabilizing, going to get much worse because of climate change. You've got the Middle East mm. completely destabilized. People don't realize the Iraq war started, excuse me, the Syrian war started, the Syrian war started because of a shortage of water that created a revolt by a bunch of farmers with muskets that started the oh, Syrian boy. war that ended up with the mess we got today. So it's a climate change. And by the way, that was well documented by Tom, um, oh, the famous writer uh, and columnist. Uh, oh, God, he, he wrote the flatter. He wrote the Freeman. Earth is flat. Tom Friedman. Pardon me? Tom Friedman, yeah. Tom Friedman. So Tom, doc- yeah. yeah, he documented, he documented the whole thing, how he started, he even snuck cameras in to the village where it started. Right. So that was a climate right, change right, triggered right. event. Okay, well, what I'm saying so, here is, so So let me, let me interrupt. So, Ronaldo, we are at the end of our show, 
And there's so much more to talk about here. So I want to have you back if you're willing. And people are going to want to know more about you and where they can find you. How can they learn about that? Go to worldbusiness.org and look me up <laughs> under officers. <laughs> and if you want to send me a message, it. that's the best place to find me. And please tell all your listeners, I would love to give them a free subscription to our newest service, which is Optimus Daily. It comes to you Monday through Friday in less than two minutes. You can read the five leading stories, and they'll show you something optimistic, because I believe that optimism is the antidote to cynicism, and cynicism is the disease of our century. So I want you to go look at that, it. because all this negative stuff I'm putting out has to be balanced by positive stuff. You can't do it. So is that OptimistDaily.com? That... OptimistDaily.com. Optimist yeah, I think it is. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Okay. If you, could, if you could, Great. Send a note to the Academy. Info at World Business. We'll put you on. Okay, awesome. Thank you so much, Ronaldo Brutico. It was fantastic to have you here and um, continue to save the world because we need you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. You too. Remember, everyone, to think big. The world could be a better place because of a conversation that matters. This is Cheryl Esposito. Thank you for spending this hour with Cheryl Esposito and Leading Conversations. You can listen live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you have a question or comment for Cheryl, please email her at leadingconversations at alexaconsulting.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G-C-O-N-V-E-R-S-A-T-I-O-N-S at A-L-E-X-S-A-C-O-N-S-U-L-T-I-N-G.com. See you next week. 